0: Good morning, I'm Scott. I am uh, one of the pastors here. If you take your Bibles, please, and turn to Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. And uh, we're going to be in Ezekiel this morning in a few minutes on page 724. So uh, if you have this Bible in front of you, 724... Um, And we're going to be there. And we're going to start a series this month called The Covenantal Life of God in the Church. And the goal of this sermon series over the next several weeks and through this month is to remind ourselves of the covenantal life that God has and is sharing with us as His people And that covenantal life that we have together demands certain obligations. It it demands that we work together as a church and be partners together in the gospel ministry. And we are going to conclude our series this month with actually doing a covenant signing. And what that means is we are going to, in a sense, um, clean our roles of all existing members if you will, and at the end of this month we're going to start over with a new process of how to join our church, belong to our church. Uh, we're actually calling that a partnership, and we'll talk through why we're calling that a partnership over the next couple weeks, and uh, we'll be doing um, have passing out a covenants for people to sign to actually become part of who we are at here at Redemption Church. So that's where we're going. But today what we want to do is I want to set the, the, the framework, the groundwork uh, for what we believe and why we believe it. Next week, Pastor Nate is going to come up and share with us more uh, practical, okay, and we should switch sometimes, you know, just for fun, um, but he's going to share some more of the practical ways that we, as we look at Scripture, what that means to live as a covenantal people, and uh, the third, and then the following week, we're going to talk through what that means for us specifically as we look to um, do our church partnership for this year. So that's where we're going. And I could say that. Um, how many of you downloaded that PDF I made? And how many of you, like everyone else who's ever seen it, said, "Oh my gosh, I need sunglasses." Okay, like I showed that to 15 people and every person was like, whoa, that's killing me. And I'm like, I'm colorblind. I like bright. Okay, I don't even know what colors they are. I don't, but they're bright. They're fun for me. They're exciting. So if it hurts your eyes, I apologize. But that is just going to be like a uh, document that we're going to be using over the next couple weeks is just, we're not going to read through it together, but it'll just kind of be like a, uh, a guide for what we're doing. And just that opening paragraph, as I lied to you, I am going to read the opening paragraph to you, that says this, Redemption Church desires to begin a new chapter in our life together as we seek to reestablish our covenantal partnership. We believe belonging to God's people under God's leaders who seek to lead in the way of Jesus is part and parcel of the Christian life. In the last few years, Redemption Church has not focused as we should on church membership, and we've had significant turnover, a change in the people who are now participating in the life of our church. And so we desire to update our partnership lists, our covenant lists, and renew our covenantal commitments to God, each other, and ourselves. And so in light of that, I want to ask this question. Who and or what gets to define your life? Who or what defines your life? Who determines what your shape of your life is actually going to look like? And I think in America, we kind of think, well, that's my prerogative. That is my desire. I get to define what my life is going to look like. And the ironic part of all that is, as you think you have this individual autonomy, this individual self-freedom to determine your own life, as much as you think that, there's always outside influences that are determining you. That you are not as free as you think you are. That you don't have the ability to define your life as freely as you want. And so as a Christian, who gets to determine where you spend your time? Who determines where you, who you spend your time with? Who determines where you spend your money? Where do you get these answers to these questions determines how you and what you look to to define your life. And in one sense, we'd all say as Christians, the basic answer is who gets to determine where I spend my time, where I spend my time with, who gets to determine that? Would any of you say, I get to determine that? Okay, you wouldn't say that out loud. Okay, but if you said it, well, if you looked at your life this week, who determines? In one sense, we know the easy answer, the, the easy answer is Jesus, and it is true. And Jesus should be the one who defines what our lives look like. But if we dig a little bit deeper, and we begin asking the question, not just does does Jesus define our life, but how does Jesus want to define our life? Because even in the idea of Jesus defining my life, I'm going to let Him define it. It's always in this context. I shouldn't say always. It's usually in this context of I'm going to let Jesus define my individual life, that I'm going to follow Jesus in this way, and He's leading me here, and He's taking me here. And it's not wrong that Jesus is leading you in certain ways in your life. But the question I'm asking is, is Jesus just leading... Seventy individuals in 70 different ways? Or is Jesus leading all of us together towards a certain object, or a certain destination? And so I, what I want to come back to is just say this is that, yes, Jesus gets to determine the shape of our life. But do you know how Jesus usually determines the shape of your life through His people? through a covenantal commitment of people who desire to live together as an outpost for the kingdom of God. So joining and belonging to a local church is a covenantal commitment. In fact, I shared with you I think two weeks ago that it is now for the first time since I started taking stats in 1930 it's for the first time ever in American history that the number of people that attend a house of worship on Sunday and belong to a house of worship is under fifty percent and I don't know if'm just I don't know if you see this trend, but I'm seeing this trend among all of my pastor friends throughout SOMA, throughout other uh, connections and relationships I have, is that even Christians are beginning to say we don't need to belong to a local church. Anyone run across that these days? Um, in In a good way, I think COVID was really helpful in a lot of unique ways for the church. One of the ways I think that we're struggling to come out of COVID is like it's just fun to stay at home and watch a video. It's fun not to have to commit my life to people in a, in a, in a daily, everyday situation. So joining and belonging to a local church is, I'm going to call, it's a countercultural, missional thing you're doing. Like it is going against the grain of our society. And when I say it's a covenantal commitment, covenant is not an everyday word that we use in our culture. Anyone use the word covenant this week in any conversation you had? Yes, I got some clowns in the back raising their hands. Okay, But for the most of us, covenant is not a word that we walk around being like, hey, how's your covenantal life going? Right? We, we don't do that. We don't have that understanding that idea, that framework. However, this word covenants functions as an integral idea. It functions as an integral part of the entire storyline of the Bible that informs who we are and how we are to be living. In fact, God from the beginning has always related to His people and His creation through a covenant. Covenant is the way that God acts. God always acts and relates to His people through His creation in the way of a covenantal framework. So what is a covenant? Okay, and I'm going to give you the big definition and we're going to walk through this together. But a, a covenant is this. It's an enduring agreement that defines a relationship between two different people or parties. And it involves a solemn binding obligation that's made by oath and is confirmed or ratified through a ritual. So number one, it's an enduring agreement. A covenant is something that goes on, in a sense, for a long, long time. Okay, and let's just, in a sense, take this definition of covenant and move it over into one covenant relationship that you all have. now I shouldn't say all of you, that some of you have. It's a is marriage we're just gonna talk about marriage. Okay? Marriage is a covenantal relationship. Malachi tells us that marriage is a covenant. And in your covenant agreement with your spouse, how binding, how enduring is that covenant? I think most of you, I hope at your wedding, said at least something to the effect, till death parts us, right? That's how enduring a covenant is. It's this enduring agreement that defines a relationship. So does marriage define you if you're married? <laughs> yeah, it really does. It defines where you get to spend your time, who you get to spend your time with, like, you can't go sleeping around with anyone you want. You can only stay faithful to one person. It defines it. It tells you who you live your life with. It tells you who you are supposed to be leading and interacting with. And so this idea of covenant in marriage, this is, it defines who you are. And so it involves a solemn, binding obligation. So these obligations in marriage, they're binding. They're not, they shouldn't be. Unbinding. They shouldn't be flippant. They shouldn't be. You can do whatever you want. And it's made by oath. This is why, in a wedding ceremony that I do, uh, this is a, this is not a right or wrong thing. It's just an interesting thing. My wedding in 1999, like 400 years ago, I think lasted over an hour. Okay, that's just how it was back then. You had like special music, and this person came up and spoke, and this person did this, and. There was like 17 rituals of like lighting the unity candles. I've done like 10 weddings in the last couple years. There's no unity candles. There's no sands. There's no special music. They walk up. They say, I do, and they walk out. And it's not wrong, but why? What's the essence of the marriage? It is the actual oath, the, the commitments, the vows that you do and say to each other. That's why I say when I do weddings, I don't care. I have two requirements. I have to be able to speak about Jesus and marriage for five minutes, and then you actually have to do the vows. Like, for me to do your wedding, that is, in a sense, what we're going to cover. And so this is what a marriage covenant is. It's made by oath. Made in a sense of vow, a solemn commitment, obligation. And number five, the fifth piece is enduring agreement. It defines a relationship that involves solemn binding obligations made by oath. And then finally, it's ratified by a visual ritual. In marriage, what's the visual ritual that you do to, to confirm the covenant? You put this piece of metal on your finger. It's the visual ritual that what your wedding band signifies, every time you look at it, is the value made, the commitments you made. Joe gave me a hauls, and it's bothering me right now, so blame Joe for that. But the idea is that this, this wedding band is what then reminds you of everything that you just did. So this is what a covenant is, that when God relates to his people... It's always through an enduring agreement that defines a relationship between him and us involving solemn obligations that God has for us and that we are to do for God that's made by oath and is ratified by a visual ritual. And I think we need to, and if you are familiar with this idea of covenant, but I think it's helpful for us to continue to keep coming back to this essence that a covenant is very different than a contract. Covenant life and contractual life are very different. And at at the risk of being pejorative and mean and harsh, a lot of the Christian culture we deal with is a contractual life. Jesus is calling us to a covenantal life. An Old Testament scholar did some studies, some deep studies. If you want more of this information, come to our theology night, Kingdom Through Covenant. If you don't want more, don't come. But uh, I'm just going to give you the summary. He made a, a big study of the differences in the ancient Near East, when Moses and those people were around, of the difference between a covenant and a contract. And this is what he, this is some of his findings. He says for like a contract, the setting, the occasion for a contract was largely the benefits that a party or a person expects to receive. So for a satisfactory sum, one person, one party agrees to supply a specified amount of product to the other party. And the contract is characteristically thing-oriented. A contract is all about a product. It's all about getting something. Whereas the covenant is not in the ancient ancient Near when we talk about biblical covenants. It's not thing-oriented. It's always what he would say, person-oriented. Theologically speaking, it arises not with benefits of a product as the chief concern, but out of a desire for a measure of intimacy. So in the ancient world, what would cause you to make a covenant as opposed to a contract is you wanted to enter into an intimate relationship with another person. If you just wanted more cows, you did a contract. If you wanted more relationship and more fellowship, you entered into a covenant. So in the ancient world, a contract was always thing-oriented, thing-centered, and a covenant was always person-relationship-centered. Now, both covenant and contracts have obligations. But with this difference... The, the obligations or the conditions in a contract was always to fulfill your terms. You know, and like, you can think of a thousand movies where someone made a contract, they didn't fulfill their terms, and now the bad guy's chasing them, trying to kill them, right? Because they didn't hand over the object, they didn't hand over the, the thing that they made a contract about. Whereas the obligation in a covenant in the ancient world is an obligation of loyalty. You are obligated to remain loyal. Think of a marriage. Okay, Your marriage is not a contract where you do A for your wife and she does B for you. A marriage, when it comes to a covenant, is concerned about loyalty and faithfulness to each other. If your marriage is based on a contract and you just keep doing things for each other, it's doomed for disaster. Whereas a covenant, which is what marriage is, is a picture of a covenant faithfulness, of covenant loyalty. One other major difference is time. A covenant commonly was, in a sense, usually multi-generational, so that if one family made a covenant with another family, it actually continued to go on and on after generation after generation after generation. Whereas a contract had a specified time period. And then when you wanted to break it, a broken contract, can, in a sense, um, you can check off all the boxes and if you don't fulfill all the boxes and you break the contracts, then the other person has the ability to do things to you that they were actually uh, agreed upon. So a covenant can be broken too, but when a covenant is actually broken, it's not concern about all the different things that you didn't fulfill and having to pay back and stealing cows and giving back, when you broke a covenant, it actually broke the relationship that existed between the parties. So he sums up his whole study by saying this, at the heart of covenants is a relationship between people that is characterized by faithfulness and loyalty in love. So when you think of that, that a, that a covenant is centered not on things, but on people, on relationships, on faithfulness, on loyalty. When God enters into covenant with his people, he enters into it not because he wants you to do things for him, or not because he needs things to be done that you have to fulfill for him. Why does God enter and act through covenant? Because He wants relationship. He wants fellowship. He wants to show you love. And becoming a follower of Jesus, that when you become a disciple of Jesus and you begin to make Him the Lord and the King of your life, this means something that you enter into an already existing covenantal relationship that God has with His people. So God has a relationship with His people, the church today, and when you became a Christian, you were ushered into this covenantal context. So, you don't have your own individual Christian life that is all on its own. No, when you follow Jesus, you come into the terms, the obligations of this covenantal life that God has for his people. Which then in my mind would beg the question, what type of relationship does God have with his church? What type of covenants is God now relating to us through? Well, if you know this if you've ever taken communion, you know that When you take the the cup, it says this blood is the what? The new covenant in my blood. You remember that little phrase? This is how God relates to us through a new covenant. That doesn't help at all. (laughs) What's new? What's old? What's going on? And this is where in our theology nights, um, we're going to dig into this more and more. But what you see throughout Scripture... All the way in Genesis 1, through the end of the story, in Revelation 22 of a brand new heaven and a brand new earth, you see God making covenantal relationships all throughout this story. And each one of these relationships, each one of these covenants, is building upon the other until you get to this final covenantal relationship that God has with His people, and it's called the New Covenants. Well, the first covenant you see in Scripture is in Genesis 1 and 2, and we call this the, the creational covenant, the covenant that God made with Adam and Eve. And God's covenant relationship with Adam and Eve promised to make the earth His home, His dwelling place. It was His covenantal commitment to dwell with Adam and Eve. So He commissioned Adam and Eve, gave him obligations to rule, subdue, and fill the earth to prepare it as a, as a dwelling place for God. And so the very first time we see God interacting with His creation, we see Him creating Adam and Eve and entering into a unique relationship with them. And then you remember in the very next chapter, Adam and Eve rebel against this unique relationship that they have with God. And all of a sudden, God's creation is thrown into a tailspin everything begins to get jacked up. And you would think, this is what I always find interesting, you would think that after Adam and Eve sinned, like it would take a long time for sin to really develop and grow. But the very next story tells us what's the very first sin after Adam and Eve that is created. Or sorry, after Adam and Eve sinned, what is the next story? It's a story of murder and hatred until you get to the point in the Noah narrative where the whole earth was so corrupt, so wicked that God was in a sense anger that even made man and so he sent a flood and he brought the waters upon the earth and brought it all all of creation back to a watery chaos which is just like it was in Genesis 1 and then when he receded the waters it's like a picture of a brand new world being formed and developed just like in Genesis chapter 1 and then God makes a covenant with Noah in Genesis chapter 8, there's a what we call a Noahic covenant, a covenant he makes with Noah. And he promises Noah that he will not always allow the curse of the earth to rule over him. There's a promise, not just that he would never flood the earth again, which is a good sign, okay? Like, I'm glad the whole earth is not going to be flooded again. But that's not really the essence of the Noahic covenant. The covenant is this, this idea that God is promising that one day the curse is actually going to be removed. And I just did a huge, magnificent sign to show you that. That I brought it back to this chaotic waters that I receded and brought back to something beautiful. And he actually gives Noah the same commands he gave to Adam and Eve. Rule, subdue, and fill the earth. In the very next scene, we don't have murder, but we have all sorts of immorality and drunkenness and chaos developing in this world. So if you were God and you start with Adam and he jacked it up and you're like, oh, let's start with Noah and he jacks it up, how many of you are like, that's it, I'm done? Well, good thing God has three strikes and we're out. I'm just kidding. He goes next in Genesis chapter 12 and makes a covenant with Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, he promises to make Abraham's name great, to bless Abraham. In fact, if you we'll look at this when we get into our, ser- our theology night, but basically Genesis 12, he tells two commands. He tells uh, Abraham, Abram at that point, okay, if you're really getting technical with me, I'm sorry. Abram at that point to go, leave his homeland, go to the place I'm, I'm going to show you. And when you go there, I'm going to do all these amazing things and bless you. But he says, go, and then the second command is, be a blessing. Go, be a blessing. Because now, through Abraham, all the nations of the earth are going to actually be able to experience the blessing that God has always intended for creation. The blessing that God had for creation that he wanted Adam and Eve to enjoy, they never got to enjoy. So he wanted to start over with Noah, and and they never got to enjoy it. But he says, one day, through you, Abraham, I promise... All the nations of the earth will experience my blessing. My intention for creation will come to pass through you. And so that covenant promise that God makes to Abraham gets passed on, as I said, this enduring agreement to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so eventually they're enslaved in Egypt. And after 400 years, God raises up a deliverer, Moses. And he brings Israel out of Egypt through some unique body of water. We'll just call it the Red Sea right now. And they walk through this wall of water and God miraculously delivers Israel from the hands of Pharaoh. And they come out on the other side and now they're in the wilderness in Exodus chapter 19 and 20 and God now enters into relationship and here's the picture we're getting God promises that he wants all the earth to be filled with his presence and his love and his life and Adam and Eve rebel against and he says no I'm going to start over with you Noah and he messes it up and he says to Abraham I promise that this time it will happen through you and so now Abraham's family develops into this Huge body, this huge nation. And as they come out, God makes a covenant with this huge nation and says, this is how the Abrahamic blessing is going to come to the nations through you, Israel. As you become a kingdom of priests, as you become the mediators of my presence to the nations, that as you obey my law, all the nations are going to come to you and they're going to say, man, why do you have such amazing laws? I mean, this is what's crazy. We read the Old Testament laws and we're like, these are silly and who wants to obey these? And yet God says when you obey them that way, and as a community it's lived out, everyone else is going to come to you and say, what an amazing relationship, this relationship of structure and law and the way you deal with each other is so amazing that we want to know about your God. That's what Deuteronomy 4 says. So God says you're going to walk with me, and you're going to be my people on this earth. And we call that the Mosaic covenants, God's covenant with Moses for the nation of Israel. And as you follow Israel's story, you know, with Joshua, it gets pretty high, and then the Judges, it gets really topsy-turvy, up and down, up and down, up and down, with highlights and really low marks and really highlights until you come to the time of David, when God puts David on his throne and he makes a next covenant, a, fourth, a fifth covenant, sorry, with David. In Second Samuel chapter 7, God promises David that there would always be a descendant on the throne of Israel. God promises David that one day a true king will come and bring shalom, bring the creational blessing for all the nations. And it will be through this king that all the nations come to dwell with me. So 2 Samuel 7 depicts God's relationship, His covenant promises to David. And what we discover in these Old Testament stories is that Israel was never able to faithfully play their part in the story of God because they continually rebelled against God. They continually were given over to idols. They were continually worshiping false gods. They did not obey the law. They became very syncretistic. That means they would worship Baal on Sunday and worship Yahweh on Saturday. They would begin to take in all the different ways of the culture they lived with along with the law and try to blend them together. And so they were unable to fulfill who they were supposed to be. And their disobedience not only caused them not to be the kingdom of priests to bring God's presence to the nations, but their disobedience actually, in a sense, exiled them from the very presence of God. So if you know Israel's story, you understand that they were split into a two-kingdom nation. There was a northern kingdom called Israel, a southern kingdom called Judah. How much story do you want to... We'll just we'll jump ahead, okay? And we know that there is a national when I say national, like this, world power uh, in around 722 B.C., around 27, exactly 722 B.C., and called Assyria, and maybe you are familiar with a man named Tiglath. You're not familiar with Tiglath-Pileser, um, but tiglath Pleaser is a, one of the leaders of the armies uh, with Hezekiah, like he took over the northern kingdom, and he came down to take over the southern kingdom, Jude. I don't know if you remember this story, but has where did this come from? This is just fun, okay, for me. And so, like Hezekiah was worried about. All of these Assyrians, they just took over their brothers and sisters up in the north, if you will, and now they're coming down to take over the southern kingdom Judah. And Hezekiah is like freaking out. So what does he do? He calls Isaiah and says, what should we do? And Isaiah says, let's pray. They pray and they walk, look out the next day, and there's 186,000 soldiers dead on the ground. Remember the story? In 2 Kings? And so Judah escaped the hands of Assyria because there was still a godly king, a remnant, who were trusting in him. But eventually there was less and less and less of these godly kings until one day a man who you might be more familiar with, Nebuchadnezzar, came and destroyed the southern kingdom Judah and took Israel, or sorry, Judah captive and now Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego or Hanani, Mishael, Nazariah, their Jewish names or Rakshak and Beni, their fun names, took them and ran them all the way over to Babylon. And now this nation who God had promised through Abraham was going to be the means by which all of his creational blessings were going to come to the creation so that we can enjoy the life and love of God. It seems like a lost cause, does it not? In 20 minutes, go ahead, and turn to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 21. We see a promise of a new day. We see the promise of a new covenant. And I'm just going to read uh, verses 21 and 22 and stop and make a comment. But in the context of God making a new covenant and new promises to Israel in the future, this is what the sovereign Lord says in verse 21. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. So now Ezekiel is in Babylon too. And I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own lands... I will make them one nation in the land. On the mountains of Israel, there will be one king over them, and they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. So what's God's promise? I'm going to say, this is a fancy word, reconstitution. He's reconstituting. He's restarting the nation. He's bringing all these people who have been dispersed and exiled to the nations, and he's going to bring them back together, and he's going to make the two one. One. The northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, all the brothers and sisters, everyone, the two people, they will no longer be two, but they will become one. God says one day in the future, there's hope for you. Then verse 23, this future promise, this future covenantal promises say this, they will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offenses. For I will save them from all of their sinful backsliding, and I will cleanse them. And then here is the most covenantal line in all of Scripture. They will be my people, and I will be their God. What is God promising in verse 23? Forgiveness empowerment to stop worshiping idols, empowerment to actually be the people they were supposed to be. And I I think we need to get in our minds, because I know I had to for a long time, get in my mind that why is God saving them from their backsliding and why is God saving them from idolatry? What's the whole point of that? Anyone want to offer an, an answer? Why does God want to save them from their backsliding? right to, to, in fact um, if you go back in Ezekiel chapter 36 he says you profane my name among the nations and I need you to actually become a people who will actually show the world how great my name is so I think if we're not careful we we'll begin to read this passage and be like he's saving me from my sins and we automatically run forward to Jesus and he has forgiven my sins and now I get to go to heaven Okay, And maybe you get to go to heaven. I mean, let's leave that Okay, But my point is, is that it's not just about having eternal life with God. God is saying, one day, I've always said you're going to be a kingdom of priests who's going to show the nations how great I am, and it's through you the creational blessings are going to come. But you know why you can't do that? You keep worshiping idols. But one day I'm going to take away all of that so that you can actually become a people who will fulfill the promises that I've made to Abraham. So God promises to save them from all of their idolatry, from all of their sin, and to bring forgiveness and to bring redemption, but not just so they get to go to heaven. So they can actually be the people God has always intended them to be. Verse 24. Verse 24. My servant David will be king over them. And they'll have one shepherd. And they will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I give to my servant Jacob, in the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children, their children's children, will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be the prince forever. Remember the Davidic covenant? God promised that one day there would be an eternal ruler on the throne of David. Here is this promise coming back up. Okay, and there's some debate, but let's just say that this servant David is Jesus. He is the one who's going to be king over his people. He is going to be our shepherd. We will be careful to follow his laws and his decrees. And he will be the prince that Daniel 9 talks about. So in the future, God is going to reconstitute the nation through bringing forgiveness. He's going to reconstitute that nation around a king. Are you with me so far? There's this idea that now a people of God are going to be reorganized around a person, and that person is, well, when we come to the New Testament, it's Jesus. And then he says, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it will be an everlasting covenant. Covenants. This covenant is what Jesus speaks of in in when he is at in a sorry when he's in the upper room with the disciples. This new re- arrangement, this new relationship, it is what. Uh, Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, I'm a minister of the new covenant. It is what Hebrews 8 and 9 speak of when the old covenant is nothing and it's become fulfilled in Jesus and now there's a new and a better way, a new and better covenant. And God's presence, and and if you can, not that it has to be perfectly in order, like in a timeline, but can you see what's going on here? There's this, people being drawn to a person, a king, and this king is going to actually lead them and God's going to forgive all of their sins through this person and he's going to make a new covenant with all of these people and then he says, I will establish them, increase their numbers and I will put my sanctuary among them. What is a sanctuary, by the way? Are you in a sanctuary right now? Please say no. Okay? In the Old Testament... In the temple, the sanctuary is the very back room. And if you're familiar with how the temple imagery worked is there was like a big tent, a big courtyard. You'd come in through the east and you'd come into this huge basin and then there'd be this structure and there's like a first room and a back room and that back room in the temple was actually where the presence of God dwelt with his people and that was called the sanctuary. The sanctuary is the place where God dwells. Okay, so... God says, I will put my dwelling place among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. What is God saying? One day, when I bring everyone back together around this king who is going to forgive all of their sins and I'm going to enter in a new way, a new way of relating to these people, I am actually going to bring my presence to them. Okay, so if we're just... Connecting dots. Where is God's sanctuary today? Say, in his people, right? Yeah, we are the temple. We are the sanctuary. God's presence is now in his people, it's no longer confined to a building or a box. Then, the final phrase says this Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. Why is God doing all of this? For the sake of the nations. And why is he doing it for the sake of the nations? Because he promised Abraham that all the nations would experience this creational blessing, which goes back to the original covenant that God has with creation, that one day his presence is going to flood the earth, and his love and his life will fill the earth, so that all people will experience life that is truly life, and be able to love and to receive love as God is able to do with himself. It will be true and perfect among all of us. So Jesus is the one who comes into this story. And He is the one who is reconstituting the nation of Israel around Himself. And He sent the Spirit of God to be with us. So that we can actually be people, as 1 John 5, the very last verse says, so we could keep ourselves away from idols. And we could be, 1 Peter 2, a kingdom of priests. Jesus comes into the story and through his death and resurrection institutes or begins a new way that God relates to his people. God now relates to you and me through a mediator, through Jesus. This is why the new covenant is so much better. The old covenant you gotta go through, Aaron, and not to be mean to Aaron, but he he's how, he, he's not good. Okay, And he he relates to all these high priests, and they're not good. They can't take away your sins. They can't keep you from idols. They can't bring you into relationship with God. They can't give you a righteousness that's not yours. And so why is the new covenant new, and why is it better? It's because we have a new and better mediator, someone who can actually accomplish what we need done for us. And we all continually live like the old covenant. We're going to keep trying to do it ourselves when the new covenant says it's already been done. Just trust in me, Jesus says. Just look to me, and all of these things will be true of you. And so now the church relates to God through this covenantal relationship. God works and He relates to all of us as His people, through Jesus, through these covenantal obligations that God has laid out for Himself, for us. It's an everlasting covenant that is much better. And it's important to realize that this covenantal relationship that exists not only defines how we relate to God but it also defines how we should be relating to each other. This is where the individual side has to be, in a sense, matched with the communal side. Yes, we all do have an individual relationship with God. I'm not denying that. But what I am saying is these covenantal relationships that God has with His people is now structuring and actually forms the barrier. It defines our life. We are all together in this new covenant. And God is relating to all of us, and we relate to each other through these obligations, through this covenantal aspect. Which means this that church partnership, belonging to a church, is simply the outworking of the covenantal life that we share in Jesus. Why are we asking you to join a church? You've already been joined. In the person of Jesus, to Jesus, you've been joined to the body. All it is is an outward working of what has already been true, been done for you. It is just, in a sense, telling the truth about who you are. Who are you? You're a person who's been joined to the body of Christ. You're a person who's been joined to Team Jesus. And Jesus is on a mission until he comes back, and now we have been included in that mission together. We are just, in a sense, asking me, and all of us, to just say with our mouths what is already true of who we are as people. The church is the forgiven, new covenant people of God who live our lives together under the authority of Jesus to witness to his resurrection. So we already exist in this relationship. You already should be in covenant relationship with each other. And we're just asking us to be able to say with our mouths, with our signature, what has already been true, what has already been done for us. It's just the outward outworking of who we are. And I would just say this you know, participating in the life of a local church, you know, I wish I could and we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks, but is there a chapter and verse that says you must join a church? As a pastor, I wish there was one. It'd make my life a lot easier. Okay, like, so like, I can't take you to a verse that says it. You, thou shalt, King James, of course, thou shalt join a church. Like, it's not there. But when you see all the things that I, that I think, not me, that people throughout church history have seen is that the church exists in this relationship. It is what it means to be a Christian. To actually belong to a local body of believers. And I know, and this is, this is, I shouldn't end with my hobby horse, I should end with Jesus. But it is kind of Jesus, we'll get there. Participating in the life of a church a, a, of a church these days, I would say, is possible, though it's not desirable. in Mine and what I want to say to deconstruct all the reasons to belong to a church through everyday, ordinary life. What do I mean by that? The Bible says, "Do not forsake meeting together." Right? Okay. And I think I grew up thinking that was Sunday. Right? I don't know that Hebrews ten twenty five is saying, "Don't forsake the assembling yourselves together." means Sunday. So, what they say is a lot of people are like, Well, I meet with God's people all the time. I don't have to belong to a church to meet with God's people. Are you with me on that? Like, and so they begin to, what I say, deconstruct and begin to say, You know, what? I can fulfill all of these commands to the church without belonging to a church. Are you with me on that? You may not agree, but does that idea resonate with you, what people are saying? And I want to say, yes, it is possible, and it's actually, in a very positive way, admirable, that you continue to meet with God's people throughout the week, that you be kind to each other, that you be generous, and that you serve and that you love each other without joining a church. However, I don't think you can deconstruct a passage in Hebrews that says this, you must submit yourselves to the elders. It's impossible, I think, that, well, it seems likely, that you have to belong to a church who has elders who have authority and accountability over you to actually fulfill that command. And what I'm trying to say is, and you'll hear this over the coming weeks, we do not lord our authority over you. Hopefully you know us. that This isn't like a power grab of the pastors to make you join a church. That's not what we're after. But what we are saying is that submitting yourself... Me submitting myself to the elder, hopefully in a few days, el- or coming days, elders, you submitting yourself to the elders, is part and parcel of what it means to belong to a church. Knowing that we will give an account for you. So it's not a power grab. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm accountable for all of you. That is crazy. And you're like, yes, that is crazy. But it's like this relationship that exists. <laughs> a church, it, it's almost becoming, what I want to say, taboo to ask people to join a church. And what I want to say is, it's it, it just should be what we already are. You should already be in covenant relationship with each other. You should already be loving and serving each other. You should already be following Jesus together where He's leading us. And it requires that you submit yourself to to elders, according to Hebrews chapter 13. So, I don't want to say church member, like if you don't belong to a church, you are not going to the new creation. I will not say that. But what I am saying is that the normal expectation throughout the New Testament, over and over again, is a group of people who live out this new covenantal life together through Jesus, who covenant to live in a certain way for the name of Jesus in their city. And who do that through leaders and elders that guide and help equip? So don't be afraid to join our church. Well, don't be afraid to join a church. Maybe be afraid to join our church. <laughs> That's a joke. I love our church. I'm thankful for what God is doing in you and through you, and excited to see uh, where we go with this. And just, if you have questions, I'll... There's going to be a lot of questions that happen over the next couple weeks, and we'd love to talk with you on that. And obviously I can't say everything in 40 minutes, but be patient with us as we try to show you the covenantal life of God that exists with us and what God expects of us. So, Father, thank you for a few minutes. To be able to see how you relate to us today in a new and a better way, through a new covenant, I just pray that you will help us to be people who live out this reality, people who will live together for the name of Jesus, that your name would be made great in Chesapeake, in, in Portsmouth, in Norfolk, in Suffolk, and in Virginia Beach. So Spirit, thank you for meeting with us. Empower us, give us faith to continue to see Jesus as our good and kind King who we seek to follow together. We ask these things in his name.